Today's reading is from James 5, 7 through 11. Please stand, if able, for the reading of God's word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all and back in God's Word. We are going to be in, again, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And uh, I do encourage you uh, to follow along as we work through this passage this morning. If you're going to be using uh, one of the Bibles that are offered to you in the pew, uh, you're going to find that on page 1013. And I do encourage, as I do every time I preach, that we have our Bibles open. We have the words of God before our eyes. People have literally shed their blood so that we could read it in our own language. And so it's something to give thanks for. It's something to really um, take advantage of when it is made available. So on page uh, 1013. You'll find James chapter 5 verses 7 through 11. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of background information about the, the book as a whole, but mainly this, this particular passage. So the book of James is written to a, a group of Jewish Christians right after the stoning of Stephen that you can read about in Acts chapter 7. And these Christians, they experienced significant amounts of persecution and they were forced to flee the city of Jerusalem and to kind of start settling in the various regions that surround Jerusalem. Now, as they settled in these regions, they, they began to experience um, poverty. And they started to look for work as day laborers uh, in the surrounding fields that were owned by wealthy landowners. And right before this passage in chapter 5, what we read is that these wealthy landowners were defrauding a lot of these Christians by holding back their wages. And while we don't really understand or have all the details as to what was going on, what we do know is that these wealthy landowners were committing a significant injustice. If you read in, in chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, James accuses them not only of fraud, but of murder. Because in the first century, people didn't just live paycheck to paycheck. They lived day by day with the wages that were provided them. And so, as these wealthy landowners were defrauding these Christians, they were literally unable to put food on their table for their families. And people were suffering significantly. Now, no doubt, these Christians had tons of courts that they could have appealed to and said, hey, this is some illegal activity that's happening. You need to establish justice in this case. And I think when James uses the word fraud in chapter 5, what he is pointing to is that even these courts, possibly under the influence of these wealthy landowners, were unable or unwilling to actually come to the aid of these laborers. And so the Christians, these Jewish Christians that had lost everything, as it were, because of their faith in Christ, having been pushed out of Jerusalem, they were now suffering. 
And they were not only suffering in a way that was outside of their control, but they were suffering at the hands of people that they once trusted. And we know what that's like in our own lives, some of us more than others, how painful it is to be sinned against and how difficult it is to know how to respond when you are sinned against. On the one hand, we're tempted to respond in despair and to doubt God's goodness and care in our lives. And on the other hand, we're tempted to vengeance and bitterness and anger and to doubt God's sovereignty and control over that situation. And it's into this struggle, the pain of being sinned against and the unknown of how to respond, that James is speaking a word of encouragement this morning. And what he is saying is that when our hearts are established in Christ, then we can patiently and properly respond when we are sinned against. And so what James is going to give us this morning are three really beautiful illustrations. The patience of the farmer, the words of the prophet, and the lessons of Job. And the reason he's going to give these to us is so that he can help us see what a heart established in Christ actually looks like and ultimately to show us how we can respond patiently and properly when we are sinned against. So the patience of the farmer, the words of the prophets, and the lessons of the life of Job. That's where we're headed, but before we do, let's take a moment and pray and ask God to be with us as we study his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us. Because of the work of Christ, you have drawn us near and you have called us together this morning to worship and to honor your name. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We thank you for your word, for preserving it down to this very day, for speaking to us through it. Be with us now, Holy Spirit. Illuminate our hearts as we consider what it means to have our hearts established in Christ and what it means for us to respond patiently and properly when we experience the pain and the difficulty of being sinned against. Be with us now. Bring us comfort and help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so James says there's three pictures that we're going to be looking at this morning. The patience of the farmer, the words of the prophets, and the lessons of Job to see what it looks like for our hearts to be established in Christ and how we can respond properly and patiently when we are sinned against. So here's where, where James begins. Look in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So James, he makes this connection between the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ, and the season of harvest. And so he says that just like the farmer is patient for the harvest, we too should establish our hearts and be patient when we suffer. And so what James does in these first verses is he points out two aspects of the farmer's patience to help us understand what it looks like for a heart to be established in Christ. He says that the farmer is defined by his hope in the season of the harvest and his faith in the season of waiting. So the first thing he says, if you go back and you look at it, uh, verse 7, James says that the farmer's patience in the present is rooted in his hope of the coming harvest. You see, when he says, see how the farmer waits 
for the precious fruit of the earth. He is drawing attention to the motivation of the farmer, not being so much in the present, but being in the certainty of the future. So as the farmer looks out over his field, and it hasn't yet borne any fruit, it's just barren to the naked eye, he doesn't look at that barren landscape with a sense of discouragement. He doesn't look at it with a sense of despair, but with a sense of anticipation. Because the farmer knows two things. He is certain of the double knowledge that the seed is buried in the ground, and that the fruit of the harvest will be coming soon in the future. And that's why James describes that harvest as the precious fruit of the earth. That word precious, it just means something of great value, something worth possessing, like prized jewelry, something that is worth waiting for. As John Calvin points out in his commentary, the reason that the farmer establishes his heart in the hope of the harvest is precisely because the farmer knows that it is his very life that is hidden in the ground. I think that's just beautifully said. But the farmer isn't just known by his hope in the season of the harvest. He's not just known by looking to the certainty of the fruit that will be born by the seed that is in the ground. But he's also defined by his, he's known by his faith as he waits. You go back to verse 7 here. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits until it, the seed, receives the early and the late rains. You see, the farmer is not just a person that looks to the future, but is a person that knows how to wait in the present, patiently. And the reason that this is the case is because farmers are aware that every crop has its unique planting season and its unique harvest season. And so, if the farmer is ignorant of this dynamic, this necessity of the season of waiting, he may end up being very, very discouraged. He may end up having despair and not waiting until the harvest because he's unaware of the necessity of this waiting period. But on the other hand, if a farmer is wise, if a farmer is aware of the season of waiting and the season of harvest, then the farmer that is waiting, his faith is actually strengthened by this season of waiting because he knows how to respond patiently and properly during the season of waiting because he knows that the harvest season is coming. He has the certain hope of what is to come and he knows that it will be worth it. And James is saying that that is exactly the same as it is with us. When our hearts, like the farmers, are established in the hope of the harvest, the certainty of Christ's return, and the certainty of his promise to deliver his people from sin and injustice and all of its effects, then when we suffer, even under the weight of another person's sin against you, then the Holy Spirit in those moments will strengthen us to suffer patiently and to suffer properly because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, we know in those moments that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us and to us at the day of Christ Jesus upon his return. 
And so this, this begs a really, really important question. What does it mean as we put our hope in the harvest, in the return of Christ, what does it mean for us to wait patiently and properly? And this is where James shifts gears a little bit. And he says, now that we've looked at the, at the farmer as to what it looks like for our hearts to be established, let's shift gears and consider the words and the example of the prophets. Look in verses 9 and in verse 10. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of of the Lord. You see, the natural response to suffering, I think, is groaning. So whether you're experiencing the effects of sin as you wake up in the morning, and as I get older and older, I begin to really understand, you know, what that means, or you're feeling the effects of sin when you are hurt by someone's sin against you. We all know this. Sin breeds suffering, and suffering produces groaning, just like that. In fact, Romans 8 says that all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, as it longs for the new heavens and the new earth. But James, in this passage, it's really important to understand that he's not talking about the groaning that's described in Romans 8. What James is talking about is more akin to how the nation of Israel groaned and grumbled and complained in the wilderness. And that's why he says, do not grumble, brothers and sisters, when you experience the suffering of someone's sin against you. You see, this type of grumbling, not the, not the groaning that we read about in Romans 8, but this type of grumbling against one another and against God, James says, is actually a form of unbelief. It's a form of sin that needs to be confessed because it is an insult to God's character. And we're going to see a lot more about what God's character is like a little bit later on. But instead, what James says here is that when our hearts are established in Christ, then when we experience the suffering that comes as a result of someone's sin against us, then we're going to sound a lot less like those who wandered in the wilderness and a lot more like the prophets of the Old Testament. So what did the prophets in the Old Testament, what did they sound like when they suffered under the sins of others and did so patiently? And here's what James is going to kind of point us to, though he doesn't say it explicitly. The prophets, when they suffered, did two things. As they waited patiently, they testified both to God's judgment on sin as well as God's mercy that is come in Christ. It doesn't take a lot of reading in the prophets of the Old Testament to hear an example of God's judgment for sin. Let me just read you one example from Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel 34, 7 through 10, the Lord says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts 
Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, but I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Again, that's in Ezekiel 34. You see, this points to, and the prophets as a whole point to the fact that God hates sin. And he hates injustice in all of its forms. He hates it because he knows that it destroys his good creation and it is an affront to his kingdom. In Psalm 89, it says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne and that steadfast love and faithfulness go before him always. You see, God hates sin because he loves people more than any of us. Especially those who are suffering. Especially those who are the most vulnerable. And we see that and hear that idea of the most vulnerable being affected by sin and injustice, even in the book of Ezekiel. This idea that God is love and therefore cannot or will not judge sin is not only a really, really silly idea, but it is also a massive insult to God's character. A father does not stand idly while his children are suffering. And neither is it with God. And so God called the prophets to speak in his name and expose the sin and the injustice of their day. This wasn't a form of grumbling. It wasn't a form of vengeance. It was a reflection of God's heart. It was a demonstration of their dependence on God for his just character and his just judgment. It's really important to hear that. But it's also really, really important for us to understand that the message of the prophets did not end or cease with judgment for sin. But the prophets continued to speak and they began to talk about and to declare mercies of God that would come in Christ. The most beautiful example of this is the book of Hosea. See, in the book of Hosea, God called a man by the name of Hosea to be a prophet, and he said, Mary Gomer, this woman who is a prostitute, who is going to be serially unfaithful to you. And the reason that God did this in the life of Hosea was so that sin might be seen for what it really is, spiritual adultery that violates our relationship with God. However, after multiple chapters of pointing out and exposing and condemning the sin of Gomer and the sins and injustices of God's people and the world, what God does is he says, okay, Hosea, now I want you to go and show mercy. I want you to restore Gomer as your bride and her children as your children. And in those days of mercy, the Lord God says in Hosea chapter 2, I will betroth you, a sinful people, to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
The message in Hosea and the message throughout all of the prophets are all meant to point forward to the fulfillment of these beautiful and glorious promises in Christ, especially at the cross, where at great cost to himself, Christ bore the judgment of our sin and injustice against God and gave his spotless righteousness to us as a gift. And so while we suffer because of the sin and injustice of others, as we cry out for justice like the prophets, we also need to hear this message of mercy. Because as the psalmist says, if the Lord would count sins, who could stand? Which of us would be able to stand and say, I am righteous of my own accord? I am the one with pure lips. I am the one that doesn't have blood on their hands and I am the one that can cast the first stone. None of us. If the Lord would count iniquities, no one would stand. Echoing Ezekiel in Isaiah, it's because we like sheep, all of us, have gone astray. So we need to hear, yes, the message of judgment through the mouths of the prophets, but especially the message of mercy. The world had an incredible opportunity to witness such a testimony to God's judgment on sin and God's mercy in Christ just last month. Last month, at the conclusion of the trial of Amber Geiger, we had an incredible opportunity to witness thing, this thing happening in our very day. For those of you that aren't familiar, this past month, Amber Geiger, who was a former police officer in Dallas, Texas, was convicted of the murder of Botham Jean. Some of you may have been following the news and so know more about this than, than even I do. But according to Amber's testimony, after a long shift, she returned home and entered Botham's apartment, believing that it was hers. And she was startled by Botham, and she drew her gun and shot him and killed him in his own living room. It's, it's utterly tragic. I can't even imagine all of the dynamics that are happening in that moment. But here's where it gets even sadder. As the investigation began in Dallas, there were a ton of concerns that the Dallas Police Department was starting to brush things under the rug. They were starting to ignore really, really important details about what had happened. And there was concern that they were actually going to ignore their obligation to uncover the truth and to establish justice as they have been called to do. And so the Jean family cried out against that injustice. They said, you should not, you cannot do this. Botham's life, God demands that you establish justice. But in the middle of all this, of all those emotions and all of that pain, stood Brant Jean, Botham's little brother, who's just 18. And at the conclusion of the trial, as Amber Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison, Brant gave what is called a victim impact statement. And I'm not going to add anything to what Brant says. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. Here's what he said. Amber, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you have done or how much you have taken from us. I think you know that. But I can speak for myself. I forgive you 
And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then Brant stepped down from the podium, and after receiving permission from the judge, he gave Amber, his brother's killer, a hug. You can watch this on YouTube. It's deeply moving. It shows that clearly Brant's heart is established in Christ. But it's not just high-profile murder trials where this is possible or where God wants this to take place. God wills and desires that this would be true in all of our lives. As he establishes our hearts in Christ by the Holy Spirit, we will be able to endure patiently. We will be able to speak like the prophets to cry out against injustice and against sin while at the exact same time testifying to the amazing mercy that God has shown us in Christ. So that's what a heart established in Christ looks like, patiently and properly responding when sinned against. But this, again, begs a really important question. How does that happen? We all know how difficult in the moment when we are being sinned against it is to make sense of how to respond. So how are our hearts established in Christ? And that is where, Job, or where James turns the page, not literally in our Bibles, but maybe in his, and says, now let's look at the lessons of the life of Job. Let's go back to the text. Read with me verse 11. Look, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James says that our hearts are established in Christ. God establishes our hearts in Christ in the same way we see the lessons of Job playing out. So what, is, what does James mean by this? Is James saying, okay, listen, just read the book of Job and then tell yourself, I need to be more like Job. No, James is not saying that because James, as all the other apostles knew, as we ought to know, Job and the entire Old Testament is merely a shadow meant to point away from itself. According to James and the book of Job itself, the lessons of the book of Job are not about Job. They are to remind us about God's strength and sovereignty and God's compassion and mercy. Let's remind ourselves of the details of Job's story for just a moment if you're not familiar. So Job is a man who lived at the time of Abraham in a region called Uz. And in the first chapter of Job, it says that Job was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. But it also goes on to say that Satan went to God and said, I want permission to sift Job and to take as much as you will give me permission to take to prove to you, God, that he will curse your name. And God grants Satan permission to take anything from Job that he wants except his life. If you really stop to think about the book of Job, 
it is a really a terrifying plot. And yet, as Job loses everything, his kids, loses his health, loses his property, loses all of his meaningful relationships, he doesn't curse God, and he doesn't die, even though he wants to. In fact, even some of Job's friends, they come to comfort him, and as a result of trying to comfort him, they end up accusing him of wrongdoing, which he's innocent of, and accusing God, which is incredibly dangerous to do. And in the end, what happens is Job cries out to God for an answer. Job demands that God give him an explanation as to why he is suffering so much. And you know what happens? God comes to Job in the eye of a hurricane or whirlwind, however you want to see that translation. And it's here in the middle of a massive storm that we see what the whole story is about. In Job 42, as God in the middle of this storm just reveals to Job the strength of his sovereign character, Job responds by saying, I know, Lord, you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so as Job, in the midst of his suffering, beheld the character of God as strong, as sovereign, his heart was established not only because he knew that God's ways and God's wisdom were far greater and far higher than his. That's very evident from the text. But he also began to see in God's character that God's plans and God's purposes are unstoppable. No matter what comes our way, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Not Satan, not sin, not the hurt of other people. God's word and will will be accomplished. His promises will be fulfilled because of the strength of his sovereign character. But this is why the second lesson of Job is so important for us to pick up on as well. Because not only does Job and his life reveal the strength of God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering, but it also reveals the depth of God's compassion and mercy. Later on in the book of Job, at the end of chapter 42, it says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning after revealing to Job the strength of his character and his sovereignty, the Lord shows Job his mercy and compassion, not just by sustaining Job in the midst of his suffering, though that is a clear and obvious example of that, but also by restoring to him the glory that he had lost. Now, it'd be really easy for us to draw a conclusion to say, therefore, what we should learn from Job is that if we just do the right thing all the time, then... As long as we don't give up, we're going to have more health and more wealth and more prosperity eventually given to us. That's not the point of Job, and it's not the point of the scriptures as a whole. That's a false gospel and needs to be exposed as such. But rather, what Job is doing is pointing 
beyond itself to the greater story, the greater reality that has been fulfilled in Christ. You see, James is not pointing to Job's example, but rather to the person and the story that actually is where our hearts are established. As we look to the story of Christ and him crucified for our sins, which is the ultimate expression of God's compassion toward us and God's mercy for us, then it's in the midst of that suffering, again, as the Apostle Paul says, he, the Lord, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not in Christ graciously give us all things? This is, in one sense, the hope of the harvest, where our certainty is established because we know not only that Christ is coming, but what Christ has done at the cross. This is how God establishes our hearts. As God graciously reveals himself to us and we behold Christ crucified. It's here that God is going to strengthen our sense of his sovereignty. In the book of Acts, it says that you, sinful people, sent Christ thinking you were doing something of your own power and actually this was God's plan from the beginning. And we also see in an amazing way God's love and compassion and grace for sinners. For the Christian, the cross is at the eye of the hurricane. For the Christian, the cross is the anchor of our souls, especially when we are being sinned against, especially when we are suffering under the weight of somebody else's injustice. And it's this Savior, Jesus Christ, this judge who is standing at the door, James says, this king who is coming and is coming soon to right all wrongs, he is the one that establishes our hearts as God gives us the faith that we need and unites us to him by the Holy Spirit. This begs another crucial question that we all need to wrestle with. And that's the question, is this where your heart is established? Is this where your life is rooted? For while the return of Christ is wonderful news for the Christian, it's actually horrible news for those outside of Christ. It is horrible news because when Christ returns, he is going to judge sin as he has promised to do, as we want him to do, as we cry out for him to do. And so if this is not where your heart is established, let me just plead with you. Turn to Christ. Look at him crucified as an expression of God's compassion and mercy toward you, a great and needy sinner. And as you believe that message, God will establish your heart in him. You will be made new. And as you are sinned against, you will take great hope in the fact that your sin is forgiven and Christ is coming again. And for us, who are already by God's grace established in Christ, 
It's God's will that each and every day the gospel would be what establishes our hearts. So that when we're sinned against, whether in large ways or in small ways, we can patiently and properly respond. We can testify to God's judgment for sin as we groan, not grumbling, but groan because of what's happening. And we can testify to God's incredible mercy that he has given us in Christ. Church, may the love that God has shown us be what motivates us as an overflow of love in our lives as we not only love our neighbors, but love our enemies. It doesn't get much more tied into Jonah than that. This is what James is saying. This is what James says we learn from the farmer who establishes his heart in the coming harvest, from the prophets as they testify against sin and testify to the mercy of God, and the life of Job that beautifully and, and deeply reveal God's sovereign strength and his deep compassion and mercy toward us who are sinners. Establish your hearts in Christ so that when you are sinned against, you may glorify God in all that you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the compassion and the mercy towards sinners that you have shown through him at the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for not just your death on our behalf, but your resurrection and your ascension, that all enemies will be placed under your feet, and when you return, your kingdom will abolish Satan, abolish death and sin forever. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, establish our hearts so that when we feel the effects of sin, especially if it's against us personally from another person, that we would not just look to you as an example, but look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith, as the one who will restore establish and strengthen us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.